0: Homer, do you want your son to become chief justice of the Supreme Court or a sleazy male stripper?
1: Can't he be both like the later Earl Warren?
0: Hey, everyone. This is Leon from Fiasco and Prologue Projects. On this week's Patreon-only episode of 5 to 4, Peter, Rhiannon, and Michael are talking about the Warren Court. Chief Justice Earl Warren used his tenure to aggressively expand privacy protections, civil rights, and the rights of criminal defendants. It's a legacy that demonstrates the possibility of courts forging a more just world when the political process proves unable to do so. This is 5 to 4, a podcast about how much the Supreme Court, but not the Warren Court, sucks. Welcome to 5 to 4, where we dissect and analyze the Supreme Court cases that have haunted our nation like your mother-in-law haunts the holiday season. Uh, I am Peter. I'm here with Rhiannon.
2: Hi. Hello.
0: And Michael. Hey, everybody. I,
1: I like my mother-in-law.
0: <laughs> Isn't that the well? I'm sorry, but it's our holiday episode by default, and uh, I'm gonna do some old-fashioned holiday sexism.
1: <laughs> Isn't that the thing in uh, the that skit? Right? The, oh my God, he admitted, Paul. I bet you <laughs> like your mother-in-law, right? Oh, yeah.
0: That's right. <laughs> I no, I had a. I, this is a conscious decision. I was like, I could say in-laws, but I, I was like, it's not as good. No, you know, yeah, it's not as yeah. good. Punchier. People want to hear women get put down. That's what the crowd loves, and I'm here to please them. That's you know? what
2: the people come to 5 4 for. for. <laughs> That's,
0: our <thing. laughs> That's our thing. They all, they all say it. If you want to hear that other shit, go over to Strict Scrutiny. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Today's episode, in the spirit of the holiday season, is about the Warren court. Ooh. We wanted to inject some positivity into the discourse by talking about the very brief period of time when the Supreme Court was actually good. So we're going to walk through some of the best and most significant cases that that court handed down and talk a bit about the philosophy that drove Earl Warren. And before we get into it, I think maybe just a tiny bit of historical context for our listeners who don't know much about the Warren Court. Earl Warren was nominated Chief Justice in 1953 by Dwight Eisenhower, Eisenhower would reportedly come to believe that the Warren appointment was the greatest mistake of his tenure, ha! Uh, which is how you know it was good. Get fucked. Yep. <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> Eat shit, loser. <laughs>
0: so we've talked a lot on the podcast about the Warren court, and that is because the modern conservative legal movement is in large part a reaction to the Warren court. Everything they did in the 50s and 60s shaped how conservatives view the law and the sort of apparatus that they built to fight back, to reconstruct the law and reconstruct public conceptions of the Constitution in a way that benefited conservatives.
2: I think that's right, Peter. And I also think that public conceptions and what we're taught about the Supreme Court is so much about cases that came out of the Warren Court era. Right. We think of the Supreme Court as an institution, the way it operated under Earl Warren.
0: Yeah. So, you know, we're going to talk about cases that the Warren Court handed down, but it might be worth just a little tiny bit of color about Earl Warren himself. (laughs) Uh, He was nominated chief justice in 1953. Before that, he had been a Republican attorney general and governor in California for many years and not a liberal Republican, certainly not by modern standards. In fact, he oversaw the Japanese-American internment camps during World War II, was an active proponent of those camps. Absolutely.
2: Mm -hmm. Supported it. Yes.
0: So his tenure on the Supreme Court, where he's Famously liberal and civil rights oriented is sort of a redemption arc in a lot of ways. Yeah. So let's talk about the best cases. And there's only one place to start. 1954, Brown v. Board of Education. That's right. Brown v. Board is maybe the most seminal case in Supreme Court history. In Brown, the court held that racial segregation in public schools is illegal under the Equal Protection Clause. The case overturned Plessy v. Ferguson, the infamous 1896 case that upheld the concept of separate but equal. And one important thing that I want to talk about with Brown is that in the modern day, it's considered unassailable. But at the time, resistance was enormous. Absolutely, yeah. uh, It resulted in the publication about a year or two later of the Southern Manifesto a document written in opposition to integration that called the decision, quote, a clear abuse of judicial power and vowed to use all legal means to resist it. Uh, It was signed by 19 senators and 82 representatives, all from the South. And that is only one of many, many acts and statements of resistance to Brown. It was really only over the course of decades that Brown began to become sort of uncontroversial. Brown v. Board, presents a particular challenge for conservatives who are generally originalists right as many scholars at the time pointed out it's very clear that at the time the equal protection clause was passed in 1868 it was not being read to forbid segregated schools because there were segregated schools at the time right and that's the sort of fact that originalists would generally cite as being dispositive, or at least strong evidence that racial segregation is constitutional. The opinion itself seems to reject originalism as a concept, saying, quote, in approaching this problem, we cannot turn back the clock to 1868 when the amendment was adopted. We must consider public education in the light of its full development and its present place in American life throughout the nation. So conservatives are sort of in a bind because politically it's considered monstrous to oppose Brown v. Board. But the originalist argument for supporting it is really weak. Uh, And as a result, there's like a cottage industry almost dedicated to this, where like a subset of originalist academic theory is dedicated to trying to square Brown v. Board with originalist principles. Yeah, (laughs) But I think the fact that it is both so incompatible with originalism and so plainly a just and necessary decision that makes it a strong rebuttal to the utility of originalism. Yes. And that is why I give Brown v. Board of Education. Five out of five stars.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you know, Brown v. Board, at least in the modern era in terms of civil rights decisions by the Supreme Court, it really is sort of ground zero for the iteration, which we're familiar with today, the iteration of argument about so-called activist judges. This is the classic, classic activist decision right which is mm. that you don't see the constitution doesn't talk about racial segregation the 14th amendment doesn't say that public schools need to be integrated and that segregation in public accommodations is unconstitutional so in 54 like peter said it's pretty early still in the civil rights movement mm-hmm. and the warren court a unanimous decision too the mm-hmm. warren court really right. uh going out on a limb swinging for the Fences, or whatever the fuck that is.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what right. <laughs> the baseball thing
2: is. <laughs>
1: yeah. The, the one thing uh, I've been thinking about just listening to you guys talk, actually, it's just a thought I had just now, is I think we've talked about this before that school segregation, in, in fact, now is like pretty bad, right. right? Like, is slid back to nearly the levels it was at back in the
2: 50s. Yeah. If not more in some cities. Yeah. Right.
1: Depending Mm -hmm. on on where you live. Yeah. And I do wonder how much that contributes to Brown v. Board's popularity. Right. Like if we had actual real integration, how much people would be on board with it? (laughs) (laughs) Whether or not they just like the principle of it. Right. So in other words, it's kind of like NIMBYism. Right. Yes. Like people love the idea of Brown v. Board and they love the idea of desegregation. But only when they have the option themselves of still sending their kids to a segregated school totally are living in a segregated neighborhood so it is the efforts over the last few decades at resegregating schools and creating white suburbs and all that that has given the space for so many uh moderate white people to Think highly of Brown v. Board. Mm -hmm.
2: And one of the reasons why Brown v. Board of Education is so important and so impactful was because it was a unanimous 9-0 decision.
0: Yeah, the fact that Brown is unanimous is important mostly because Warren did reportedly quite a bit of coalition building to get there. And it was sort of the first evidence that he was uniquely talented at this at pulling people in, structuring opinions such that they were a little less objectionable to the more conservative justices, cetera.
2: Right. And the clear understanding from that coalition building, the clear sort of understanding in Earl Warren that the work they were doing was political. Right. right. Understanding what a unanimous decision would mean for the country, that comprehension, just clocking that, like, it can't just be a 5-4. It can't be a 7-2 decision. This one needs to go 9-0 for our country. Right. Yeah. So the next case on our list is MAP v. Ohio. And this is a case I'm really excited to talk about because It's the case that established the exclusionary rule, a really important rule in criminal procedure that limits police privacy abuses in in criminal law. You know, my work day to day as a public defender, a lot of it flows from this case in particular. Matt v. Ohio is about the Fourth Amendment. And it's actually wild to think about how (laughs) we didn't have this case. We didn't have the rules that come out of Matt v. Ohio until 1961. Like, this is about the time that Stephen Breyer, Justice Breyer, who's on the Supreme Court now, that's about the time he started law school, right? (laughs) Like, these are, like, within people's lifetimes.
1: Within their careers.
2: (laughs) Right, right. Within their careers, these foundational concepts that are now, you know, just kind of, like, ubiquitous in the law. It's just crazy to think about how actually recent these decisions are. So let's talk about what was going on in MAP. First, just a little bit about the Fourth Amendment. You know, the Fourth Amendment doesn't mean anything without something called the exclusionary rule. We've talked a lot on the pod before about how having a right, it doesn't mean anything on paper unless there's a legal remedy for when your right is violated. So the exclusionary rule is the remedy in Fourth Amendment law. Simply put, the exclusionary rule means that evidence that police obtain illegally you know in violation of your 4th amendment rights cannot be used against you if they charge you with a crime it can't be used against you in that criminal prosecution so let's just talk about like a quick example say police bust down your door they search your house without a warrant obviously that's illegal under the 4th amendment say that during that search they find a kilo of cocaine and 3 unregistered handguns plus they find a ledger on your desk that says drug sales You know, pretty obvious what's going on, right? They confiscate all those items. They take pictures of everything. They send the drugs off to a lab to be tested, you know, all of that stuff. And then they charge you with drug trafficking and unlawful possession of weapons. They're going to throw the book at you in court. They've charged you with this crime. These are serious felonies. But wait, not so fast. We have the exclusionary rule. And because we have the exclusionary rule, the police and prosecution cannot use that evidence they obtained illegally against you. Because they broke into your house illegally, they can't use the drugs or any of the photos they took. They can't use the guns that they found in your house. The cops who were there cannot testify about what they saw and what they collected, right? That evidence has to be excluded from your case, Hence the exclusionary rule. And of course, the idea is that you know police shouldn't be able to use evidence they find in violation of your rights. That would just incentivize police to continue violating your rights in the name of crime investigation, right? So the exclusionary rule existed before Matt v. Ohio, but it didn't apply to the states. This case fully incorporates the Fourth Amendment, including the exclusionary rule, against the states. And so we've mentioned in the recent past, just in the last episode, I think, that the Bill of Rights did not originally apply to the states, only to the federal government. And so this incorporation where the the Fourth Amendment was made to apply against the states. That didn't happen fully until this case, until 1961 in Matt V, Ohio. So this means that the Fourth Amendment was only read to protect you from unreasonable searches by the feds, not state police, right? NYPD, APD, LAPD. They could do whatever they wanted. There was no exclusionary rule that applied to their illegal searches and seizures.
0: Well, let's hope they were on their best behavior. You know? well-
2: <laughs> You know, part of this story, there is a long line of Fourth Amendment cases after Matt v. Ohio that chip away at the robustness or sort of full potential of the exclusionary rule. But we're here to talk about the Warren court doing it right, at least like setting some of this stuff up. And I think when you read Matt v. Ohio, what I think is really cool about this case is the way that they are discussing the right, your Fourth Amendment rights, expansively. They're talking about the right to privacy. They're talking about how the Fourth Amendment would be meaningless, a mere, quote, form of words if they didn't do this, if they didn't apply the exclusionary rule and incorporate the Fourth Amendment against the states. In the majority opinion, it says, quote, Without that rule, the freedom from state invasions of privacy would be so ephemeral and so neatly severed from its conceptual nexus with all brutish means of coercing evidence as not to merit this court's high regard as a freedom implicit in the concept of ordered liberty. Later on in the opinion, they say, quote, There is no war between the Constitution and common sense. The majority opinion here and the concurrence by Justice Black, it hits different. They are talking about individual rights in a way that like now after over how long have we been doing this? Like
0: this podcast, 12 years. (laughs)
2: Two years, two years of reading like modern court, like the way that, you know, the Roberts court like Mm. talks about rights and stuff. It's just it's it's a completely different framework. It's a completely different approach. There's a concurrence written by Justice Black where he agrees. He says, you know, the Fourth Amendment should be incorporated against the states, the exclusionary Rule should apply in state court proceedings as well. But he says, I'm not getting that just by the Fourth Amendment standing alone. But when I look at the Fifth Amendment, which protects your right against self-incrimination, and I put that with the Fourth Amendment, right, those concepts together, you get this notion, right? And that's just you, you do not see Supreme Court justices writing about deriving rights, deriving constitutional protection from the vibe themes of the Constitution. Right. They're just not writing like this anymore. Right.
0: They don't extrapolate rights. Let's put it that way.
2: Exactly. So Matt v. Ohio, super important in criminal law and the law of criminal procedure. And the other thing I want to say on the facts, it's a very cool case originates out of the police investigating a bomb that went off at Don King's house. Don King, the boxing promoter who worked with Ali. There's like a gambling ring. Dolly Map, who is like a fucking badass is the named plaintiff in this case the woman who stood up to police who showed up at her house looking for a suspect and showed her a fake search warrant dolly map is a really really interesting character i don't know if you guys learned about dolly map when you well no you no. two you two didn't do criminal procedure <laughs> <laughs>
1: no. Correct. In law school. <laughs> I did criminal's procedure in law oh, school. Oh, you did? Yeah, I just never in practice. Yeah.
2: yeah. In my CrimPro class, we learned a little bit about Dolly Mapp. She lived for quite a while, I think, into the 90s and talked really openly about this case and about how she was fed up with police abuses and thought that her rights had been violated. And yeah, it's a great story. There are great interviews you can see with Miss Mapp talking about what happened. Yeah.
1: So moving on from criminal procedure, uh, we're going to take a look at libel law. It's New York Times v. Sullivan, and it's about libel, First Amendment protections of the press and, and that sort of thing. Of course, since it's the Warren Court and it's the 60s, it's also about civil rights. In this case, what happened was a city in Alabama was charging Martin Luther King Jr. with perjury. And the New York Times ran an ad placed by various Black clergymen and Southern activists soliciting donations for King's defense. The city manager, I believe uh, Mr. Sullivan, requested that the New York Times retract the ad, saying that some of its statements about his employees were false. Under Alabama law, the Times had an opportunity to like cure this By retracting the ad after Sullivan demanded they retract it. And the New York Times did not. And so Sullivan sued them and won a $500,000 jury award. The Times appealed to the Supreme Court, which held, in what is a very important case for modern journalism, that public figures have a heightened standard when. Suing the press for libel. And they have to show not only that what the press said about them was false, but that the media in question knew it was false or was reckless in regards to the risk of it being false. Right. So... If you have a source, if you're a journalist and you have a source that tells you something and you reasonably rely on that source, you're not going to get sued for libel if it turns out your source was wrong. Just as an example, this is called the actual malice standard, although that doesn't really refer to malice in your heart. And this is what Donald Trump is talking about when he says they want to open up the libel laws. They want to make it easier to sue the press. yes, They want to roll back this decision in particular. Yep.
0: Right. And- Times v. Sullivan is very close to my heart because it stands for the most important principle in American law, which is that you should be able to talk shit about famous people. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Right. That's exactly right.
1: Yeah, exactly. That's
0: like one of the only things I sincerely believe. Yeah. You should be able to say whatever the fuck you want about politicians. Yeah, Yeah,
2: they put themselves out there like dipshits and act like absolute fools on TV. So, yeah, I'm going to talk shit about that. Yeah.
0: All right. But. Honestly, what's even more important than talking trash about politicians? Let's say all say it together. Voting. Voting. (laughs) (laughs) Rhiannon just staring at us. (laughs) And that brings us, folks, to Reynolds v. Sims, uh, which is a seminal 1964 voting rights case and probably the most significant voting rights case in United States history. Yeah, yeah. At the time of this case, in many states... Legislative districts were not divided by population. And this case is specifically addressing the Alabama state legislature, where 25 percent of the population controlled over half of both the state House and the state Senate and district lines were still drawn based on the census of 1900.
2: Oh, my God. (laughs) So literally like 60 years before
0: the court struck that shit down holding that states must, quote, make an honest and good faith effort to construct districts in both houses of their legislatures of nearly equal population, as is practicable, end quote. So, you know, the rationale is very simple and powerful, right? The court had previously declined to intervene in these cases, saying that they were political matters. But what Reynolds held was that the dilution or debasement of your vote is a violation of the Equal Protection Clause, one person, one vote this case is where that principle emanates. Another interesting thing about this case is that the court specifically said you can't emulate the United States Senate, right? Where there's just two senators per state, regardless of population or size. Right, Like that is not good enough. It needs to be population based in state senates too, because the U.S. Senate was like based on this very specific political compromise that was specific to its time, right? Right. right. So they're explicitly saying, like, just because the federal Congress does some bullshit doesn't mean you can't do. Right.
1: Right. We all know this is actually not consistent at all with anyone's idea of democracy. Yeah. But we're stuck with it. Right.
0: <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's very close to what the court says. Yeah. In some ways, the central holding of this case that districts must be apportioned by population is now settled law, completely unchallenged in federal courts But really, Reynolds has been carved down to its bones because the principle undergirding it, that the dilution of voting power is a violation of equal protection requiring court action, has been all but rejected by the Roberts Court, who implicitly endorsed partisan gerrymandering in Rucho v. Common Cause, Mm -hmm. sort of this classic example of conservatives accepting the literal word of the Warren Court era decisions while rejecting the principle that they like very clearly stand for. Right, Right. exactly. I don't think there's actually any way to square Reynolds and Rucho, but they act like as, you know, well, what Reynolds stands for is that the districts need to be equal population. So it doesn't matter if like (laughs) one political party is just like doing insane things with, with districts, specifically to dilute the vote right. of their opponents. Right. That, that doesn't matter. Right. That's not what the Warren Court was concerned with. Like, come on, get the fuck out of here.
2: Right, exactly.
0: But that said, the Warren Court could not have anticipated the absolute shenanigans going on at the Supreme Court now. And that is why I give Reynolds v. Sims five out of five stars. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent.
2: Great. Excellent. Warren Court's really knocking it out of the park. These yeah. ratings are... Yeah. yeah,
1: I should go back and mention that New York Times v. Sullivan, I think that's a
0: five-star Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's your you know, you guys are the ones that looked at those cases. so I didn't want to jump in with my stars. But (laughs) (laughs) so far, every case I've heard from me personally would have been five out of five stars. (laughs) Great. Yeah. Next up,
2: a 1963 case called Gideon versus Wainwright. I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. We've at least mentioned it in a couple of episodes because it is so super important. So this case, Gideon v. Wainwright, stands for the proposition that if you are accused of a crime in federal or in state court, you are entitled to an attorney. And if you cannot afford one, the government must provide one for you freely of charge. So this is a Sixth Amendment decision. And again, this is another sweet, sweet, sweet incorporation case. So basically, the Sixth Amendment just says, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. But again, you know, at the beginning, this didn't apply to proceedings in state court. This was only applied to federal court proceedings. So it's a really short opinion, actually, written by Justice Black. And there are some really incredible kind of, again, expansive, powerful invocations about justice, liberty, equality, and why this right to the right to counsel has to be read into the Constitution. Right. Yeah. The majority says in the opinion, quote, the assistance of counsel is one of the safeguards of the Sixth Amendment deemed necessary to ensure fundamental human rights of life and liberty. The Sixth Amendment stands as a constant admonition that if the constitutional safeguards it provides be lost, justice will not be done. What I really like about the opinion, too, is the way that it's weaving in the reality of the discrepancy in access to justice based on somebody's wealth. Right. So it's a recognition here that somebody who is poor does not have access to the justice system in a way that, you know, a moneyed defendant who can hire private counsel does. There's another quote from the opinion here. The right of one charged with crime to counsel may not be deemed fundamental and essential to fair trials in some countries, but it is in ours. From the very beginning, our state and national constitutions and laws have laid great emphasis on procedural and substantive safeguards designed to assure fair trials before impartial tribunals in which every defendant stands equal before the law. This noble ideal cannot be realized if the poor man charged with crime has to face his accusers without a lawyer to assist him. So just really kind of bold, powerful language that sadly, like, you just don't see from more modern writers at the Supreme Court, even the so-called liberal wing.
0: Right. And, you know, I think we've talked about this. Gideon is my probably my favorite case of all time. And I think yours, too, Rhi. And the principle here feels very essential and quintessentially American, right? Everyone's yeah. entitled to a lawyer. If conservatives had controlled the court for the last 60 years, you would not be entitled to a lawyer. I fucking That's guarantee right. it. That is a fucking fact.
2: Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
0: And, you know, you can tell in part because of the way that they've whittled away at the sort of implications of this right by not doing anything to protect the quality of lawyer that you're entitled to, right, right? and the quality of representation that you're entitled to. Right. But the heart of this case remains a promise that no, like, sincere conservative, sincere originalist could come to on their own, right? It's something that you could only get from a court that viewed civil rights as Something to be affirmatively protected.
2: Yeah. And just one more comment about how fundamental and like important and popular this case is among public defenders. Right. Who there wouldn't be a public defender system without Gideon v. Wainwright. I know. More than one. Pro- I know several people with Gideon V. Wainwright tattoos, <laughs> Gideon V. Wainwright artwork that's like hung up in public defender offices. This is a foundational. Rachel, we should
1: consider cutting this. I don't know. I don't know that I I want everyone to know that Rhiannon knows people like that. <laughs> <laughs> Guilt by association by association. I associate with Rhiannon, who associates with these people, and it's very... I I don't
2: like
1: it. I don't like it at all.
0: (laughs) Michael, I just re-listened to one of the Row episodes, and you literally say that you won't share your plans for revolution in the podcast, so I don't think you really have any room to maneuver here. Fair enough. I do want to say, Re. I feel like you have a conflict of interest, though, because you like Gideon. Mm-hmm. It's the reason you have a job. Public defenders wouldn't exist. Right? You have yeah. a pecuniary reason to like yeah, Gideon.
2: Yeah, I'm I'm a, I'm a right. lobbyist for Gideon. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> I love it out of the kindness of my heart. Right. Uh-huh. I love it because I am a man of generosity, yes. you know, a benevolence of spirit.
2: Glad we established that on the podcast. Listeners really did need to hear yeah. that.
0: I agree. Well, so we talked about your two favorites.
2: Yes.
1: That Peter said was uniquely American. I want to talk about my favorite case, which I also think is sort of uniquely American.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Which is Miranda v. Arizona. And this is a case where I have uh, no doubt all our listeners have heard of. It's probably the most well-known Supreme Court case. Miranda warnings are something that just about everybody knows and is aware of. And so it's worth discussing how they came to be and how they are somewhat controversial and disliked in some circles, which I found very surprising when I started doing research on Miranda in law school. So we've talked before about how the Bill of Rights didn't really apply to the states prior to the Civil War and the Civil War Amendments. And after the passage of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, especially the 14th Amendment, a long process started called the incorporation of the Bill of Rights to the states, where the Supreme Court slowly but surely affirmed that, yes, the Fourth Amendment applies to the states, and states have to respect your Fourth Amendment rights. And yes the Seventh Amendment, and on and on. And that's ongoing. I don't think the Second Amendment was incorporated against the states until 2008. Mm -hmm. So the Fifth Amendment was incorporated in 1964, also a Warren Court decision, Malloy v. Hogan. And so two years later, they were directly confronted with this question of- When does police interrogation at the state level violate people's Fifth Amendment rights? And so Miranda was actually a consolidation of four cases, which the court described as having a few important features in common, which was incommunicado interrogation of individuals in a police-dominated atmosphere, resulting in self-incriminating statements without full warnings of constitutional rights. And what the court said was, look, this is inherently coercive. Yes. Mm -hmm. Being held in a room for three hours, four hours, and not being able to talk to anyone, uh, let alone a lawyer, being an unsophisticated civilian who doesn't know how this stuff works, sitting across from people who literally do this for a living, who've been trained on it, who know how to do this in and out, that you can never trust that any confession that comes out of that is voluntary. Exactly. Right. So, what happened here is pretty remarkable. It is maybe the only prophylactic Supreme Court decision. Certainly, off the top of my head, I can't think of others where usually courts say, We need a case or controversy. You need to come to us after something has happened and tell us. What went wrong? But here the Supreme Court's saying, this is just too dangerous. It's too much of a constitutional risk. So you have to do these things to mitigate that risk. The police have to tell you that you can have a lawyer present during questioning. The police have to tell you that you can remain silent. You don't have to answer their questions, which is what gave rise to the Miranda warnings. And it is, again, the height of judicial activism, going out and deciding issues before they even happen. Right. Saying that this could very well be a coercive interrogation before the interrogation even starts. It's also, like I said, the most well-known and popular decision in the Supreme Court history.
2: Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: So I don't know what that says about judicial activism and the stigma attached to it, but it's something that I don't think most law professors and people in legal circles really reckon with that much.
2: Yeah. Michael, I had never thought about it in these terms until you talked about Miranda. I mean, you know, like I'm the one who like litigates Miranda a lot. Right. Right. But I had never thought about it until you Started talking about it in the uniqueness in the way the court handles the problem, right? right? So, usually, like you're saying, the Supreme Court says, No government or no whoever, you can't do this anymore, right. right? And they are saying that in Miranda, but they're also adding, Here's what you will do, right? Right,
1: going forward.
2: Exactly. And it's really incredible. And I think the power of that treatment is why even every layman in America knows on a basic level what your Miranda warning means right Right.
0: that's right it did the impossible it forced police officers to articulate a full sentence
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know they read it off cards yeah yeah they don't yeah and they read everything off off little like um printouts that they carry with them so um that makes it tougher because you know Mm -hmm. illiteracy
0: right
1: I do want to talk about because something I was like surprised to learn, you know, I, I had a, a sort of seminar class where we got into Miranda a lot in law school, is that there was very strong opposition to it immediately. And that opposition continues to this day. Yeah, Congress was like enraged by this and they passed a law purporting to overturn Miranda. And that law was on the books, although I don't think it was generally followed Until 2000, in a case called Dickerson v. United States, where the Supreme Court finally was like, no, Congress, you can't just overrule Miranda by statute. Like, that's not how it works, right? right? Right. This is a constitutional ruling. Like, we don't have authority over state courts unless it were enforcing the constitution. right? But it wasn't just like Congress, it's law enforcement has pushed back on it. And they've come up with all sorts of different ways to try to get around it, to weaken it. They water down their recitation of it. Yeah, One instance was, I think in Indiana, they said that you have the right to an attorney before any questions are asked. And then there's a number of other rights. And then they say at the end, this applies throughout You know, at any time you can invoke these things. And so read together, that's supposed to mean, yeah, you can also have an attorney. You can request attorney after questioning has started. Right. As if like people are like reading these, like they're combing through a contract or whatever and understanding how different provisions interact or whatever. The Supreme Court said that was fine, you know, despite a lot of people thinking like, oh, once questions started, I can't ask for an attorney anymore. Right.
2: Right. Right.
1: Infamously in Louisiana, A few years ago, someone asked for a lawyer dog, and Louisiana Supreme Court said that that's not a sufficient invocation of Miranda rights because he could have been asking for a lawyer dog. A dog
2: that's a lawyer. Your
1: canine friend. So, idiotic. There's like some real shitty things that were happening in New York with the Queen's DA where they were reading anti Miranda warnings before giving the, the Miranda recitation. Although the high court in New York recently overturned that, but they would say, like, if you have an alibi, give me as much information as you can, including the names of any people you were with. That was the first thing they told people. And then would read the Miranda warnings after and then be like, yeah, that's that's fine. People understand their rights. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Queens, baby.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, yeah, this is uh, something that is an ongoing fight to retain these rights. But we have to thank the Warren court. For them
2: absolutely, yeah.
0: Out of five stars, Michael, what would you say? <laughs> five <laughs> easy, <laughs> <laughs> easy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, another case hit me 1967, Loving v. Virginia. Oh, yeah. hell yeah, case that legalized interracial marriage nationwide, unleashing. Rhiannon on white men everywhere.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Come at me, daddy. Let's go. (laughs)
0: Large white boys. (laughs) The whitest boys you ever see in your fucking life.
2: (laughs) It's legal, baby. I know the law.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Struck down a Virginia law that forbid marriage between the races. This was a touchy issue for the court because on one hand, the logic of Brown v. Board we're looking at 13 years before, basically made it impossible to do anything other than strike laws like these down. Yeah. But on the other hand, interracial marriage was actually super sensitive as a matter of public opinion. And the court was wary about public backlash. In the 1950s, polling showed that 90 percent of whites opposed interracial marriage. Ooh. And as a result, the court in the 50s, shortly after Brown v. Board, actually dodged a couple of constitutional challenges to the law in ways that were pretty dishonest, frankly, just sort of hoping to avoid broader backlash against civil rights. Yeah. But then when you get to 1967, the civil rights era had sort of turned the rhetorical tide a bit. And even though large majorities still opposed interracial marriage, the court felt it could be a little more aggressive. And they attacked the law quite aggressively, namely by quoting Virginia courts that had upheld the law and upheld the law using extremely racist language. And the Warren court called the justifications for the law, quote, obviously an endorsement of white supremacy. Yes. Uh, Fuck yeah. Get
2: their asses.
0: Pretty cool shit. Yeah. (laughs) And that is why I give Loving v. Virginia five out of five stars. (laughs) Hey. That was a good discussion on
1: marriage. Now we got to talk about what comes right after marriage. Yeah. And only after marriage. That's right. (laughs) First night after you're married. And then every
0: Sunday, 6 p.m. thereafter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. We are talking about Griswold v. Connecticut.
1: The fellas love Griswold.
0: (laughs) It found a right to contraception used by married couples, right? And it found that right in the Substantive Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment in what they said was an implied right to privacy, which would then go on to be the underpinning for Roe v. Wade. Yes. Mm -hmm. As a result, the fact that Roe v. Wade is not doing great right now, I would say, Mm -hmm. has caused some people to perhaps speculate that any right to contraception you might have is about to get tossed out the window expressly or implicitly, which is, I think probably, I don't know if it's correct in the sense that the court would actually go there, but certainly if the court does away with the right to privacy then there goes your right to contraception as a married person. That's right. Are states willing to just start fucking with contraception laws and and outright banning it in certain situations? We'll see, you know? Have you ever been to Alabama? (laughs) Right. America, here we go.
2: I do wonder, though, like how the pharmaceutical industry, like their Mm -hmm. interests play into this, right? Like birth control, all of that. Like those are
0: <laughs> Joe Manchin's about to get that filibuster running real good. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean it would be a big money loss for some business interests if people weren't buying all this medication.
1: We're literally forbidden from buying right. some of their most <laughs> you know commercially successful right. medication.
0: Yeah. But- I will say that of the potential next steps that the court might take after striking down Roe v. Wade I feel like the hype about gay marriage being illegalized Mm -hmm. feels a little overblown relative to what could happen to contraception for vulnerable populations.
2: I think that's probably right. Yeah.
0: Because Obergefell had equal protection rationale behind it as well. It's not just based in this substantive due process concept. And that could win votes at the end of the day, perhaps even from someone like Neil Gorsuch, who knows? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Someone who seems a little more also just attuned to you know, LGBTQ issues in general. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah. So we're not even coming close to hitting all the great cases from the Warren Court. We had Brandenburg v. Ohio, where the court held that speech could not be outlawed just for advocating illegal activity. Heart of Atlanta Motel, v. United States, where they upheld the Civil Rights Act under the Commerce Clause.
2: A lot of hits. Yeah. Yeah, And while we're on the topic of pregnancy, bodily autonomy, those kinds of cases and jurisprudence, a really important decision less widely known than, you know, the big ones, Brown v. Board of Education and such, is Shapiro v. Thompson. Mm -hmm. This is a Warren court decision that found that there is a fundamental right to travel in the Constitution. Mm -hmm. And how this is connected to the bodily autonomy stuff is that this case actually rose out of a 19-year-old unwed mother in the early 60s who moved from Massachusetts to Connecticut. And when she moved to Connecticut, she applied for state benefits, welfare benefits. Connecticut denied her those benefits on the basis that she had not been a resident in the state of Connecticut for a year. Now, the Warren court gets this case and they basically say that Connecticut's justification for having this rule for saying that welfare recipients have to live in the state for at least a year, their justification for that rule was unacceptable. Basically, Connecticut was saying that they had the one year residency requirement because they did not want needy people from other states moving to Connecticut to get welfare benefits. Mm -hmm. So the court Mm -hmm. in this case says that's not a good enough reason. And in fact, that violates a person's and individual's fundamental right to travel. Right. Mm -hmm. This case, while it's not sort of clear at this point or probably not even likely at this point that the court takes up a case that is challenging the right to travel today, it will be interesting to see when the court overturns Roe what happens with people who are seeking abortions over state lines. Right. People who then have to travel to get abortions and how legally a conservative legal movement and a conservative of Supreme Court starts to reckon with kind of those ancillary rights, Mm -hmm. like the right to travel.
1: Yeah. Before Loving v. Virginia, a a lot of states had laws that were like not respecting marriages, interracial marriages, where people would cross state lines to get married, right? Right. Because they, you know, they couldn't get married to whoever they loved in South Carolina. So they had to go to North Carolina or whatever to do it. Right. And so it wouldn't be surprising to see laws like that come back, you know, if Roe v. Wade's overturned. Right. Mm -hmm. And then how do we treat that right now? This could definitely have some some relevance very soon. Yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. Another case that has continuing relevance is Katz v. United States. Yes. This is an interesting case about the Fourth Amendment, which, as a reminder, protects you against unreasonable searches and seizures Prior to Katz, the Fourth Amendment was very tied to property and property interests. And the main idea was if the government trespasses against you, against your person, against your house, against your papers and effects, then that is a search and they need to have it justified by a warrant. Katz was a case where I believe a bookie Mm -hmm. was suspected. The government was monitoring this bookie and he was making phone calls on a payphone. And so what they did was they bugged that payphone, and their thinking was, look, we don't need a warrant to do this. It's not his property. Mm-hmm. He doesn't own it. So we can just listen to all his calls on the payphone and use that as evidence against him. And the Supreme Court said no and articulated this new test that has become very predominant in the Fourth Amendment, which is, you know, they say the Fourth Amendment protects people Not property, right? And so the question is whether you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And when you go into a phone booth and you close the door behind you, of course you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. You have an expectation that nobody's listening to your call. Right. And so if the government wants to do that, they need to get a warrant. Doing so is a search. They're violating your reasonable expectation of privacy. That's a search under the Fourth Amendment, and you need a warrant. It's only become more relevant as technology has sort of changed the amount the government can uh, surveil you. And it's been, I would say, a mixed bag in terms of its legacy. So in some areas, like for example, you could build a wall around your house so that nobody can see in your yard. But according to the Supreme Court... The DEA can fly a helicopter overhead. And if they can see right. into your yard and see marijuana, you don't have Yo, a, let's do that case. We, you don't have a reasonable <laughs> expectation of privacy. And that is not a search under the Fourth Amendment, and they don't require a warrant. On the other hand, They can't use a thermal imaging device to see what you're doing in your house. Inside your house, right. This is a real case. Yes. Which I believe Scalia wrote (laughs) the uh, majority opinion actually saying like, no, you can't fucking do that. People have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Right. What they're doing in their own home behind closed doors. Right. right?
2: Do not look for my warm body behind my wall.
1: Right. Right. More recently, the Roberts court said that to collect, I think, historical cell site data, like a week's worth of somebody's movements pinging off cell towers requires a warrant. You have a reasonable expectation of privacy and that sort of like gestalt amount of information. So it's been, like I said, a mixed bag. Yeah. I, I think the big concern, given the, the cases I just described, is drones yeah. and drone surveillance and whether yes. or not they're going to treat that more like thermal imaging or they're going to treat that more like helicopters overhead, right? right? But it is a case with like very very contemporary relevance and and continues to do a good job, I think, overall of protecting our rights.
0: Yeah, it's been weakened in some respects, but yeah. it, the core right is still there. And the sort of common sense approach that the court yeah. articulated has carried forward right. to a large degree to the modern day. Right. And for the record, still makes total sense as yeah, like a standard. Yeah. It's just That's such true. a reasonable standard. Yeah. You know, the cops were just basically saying, well, like, you know, this shouldn't count as a search. And the Warren court was like, well, you were fucking searching, though, weren't you? Like right. right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah.
2: So we should also mention that we don't think the Warren court and every case that came out of the you know time period when Earl Warren was chief justice, we don't think that every single case was perfect. You know, we've done an episode on Terry v. Ohio very early on. That's the case that basically allowed stop and frisk. Mm-hmm. That was under Chief Justice Earl Warren. And we talked in that episode about how at the time, I think the Supreme Court was limited in their sort of Foresight. They couldn't predict the size of the police state and what would come out of surveillance and policing in the modern era. But that's not the only one either. Brown v. Board of Education had a follow up case, Brown 2, Mm. which in a lot of ways took the momentum out of the push for desegregation in public schools. That was also a decision that came down under Chief Justice Earl Warren. So, yeah, I think it's important to note that it certainly wasn't a perfect time at the Supreme Court.
1: That's right. And I do think some of those shortcomings are maybe like understandable in that they didn't necessarily anticipate what was reaction to their own decisions, right?
2: That's right. Like yeah.
1: so much of the police state, modern policing and mass incarceration and the war on drugs were reactions to decisions of the Warren court and the civil rights movements surrounding the the court, you know, at the time. Yes. So they didn't anticipate some of that stuff, but I still think they did uh, far more good
0: Yeah. I think that there is like a good comparison to someone like Bernie Sanders, right, where if you're on the left, it's like, is there uh, a lot there to criticize? Sure, of course. Mm -hmm. But he's so much better than the median politician and the Warren court is so much better than the courts that came after it, Mm -hmm. that focusing on the bad feels like you're wasting your time, right? It it feels like you're missing the point to a degree. Right. Yeah. Wrapping up, I want to sort of articulate what I think was the Warren court's philosophy. There's a famous footnote, perhaps the only famous footnote, by Chief Justice Harlan Fisk Stone in the 1938 case, U.S. v. Caroline Products. Footnote four. That's right. It's long, at least for a footnote, but it lays out a vision for the court's role in society that hadn't been articulated to that point. At the time, we were just exiting the Lochner era, where the court had prioritized contract and property rights over civil rights and liberties. And what Justice Stone wrote formed the basis for the vision of the Warren Court and progressive legal thinkers moving forward. He suggested that laws that make it difficult for political processes to function should be scrutinized more aggressively by courts and that, quote, prejudice against discrete and insular minorities, which tends to seriously curtail the operation of those political processes ordinarily to be relied upon to protect minorities, may call for a correspondingly more searching judicial inquiry. In other words, he's saying that the court's role may be to protect against circumstances where people are being denied access to the political process, especially in the case of historically vulnerable minorities, which was a fairly novel concept in 1938, right? Right. This is the vision, I think, that is tying together the Warren court's jurisprudence. The idea that democratic participation in government is paramount, And the court can and should assert itself where access to democratic processes is being denied. The conservative critique of the Warren court is that it was too detached from the Constitution, too reliant on the whims of judges. But the reality is that before intervening, Warren was always asking a simple question. Is there a reason why this issue cannot be addressed through traditional political processes? If there was, the court was much more willing to intervene. Right. And as a result, we saw the end of expressly legal segregation, the elimination of various grossly anti-democratic voting practices, the protection of private speech from aggressive state action, the vindication of minority civil rights. That's not an output of judicial activism. It's the output of a very specific vision of what the court's role in our constitutional system is. And you can contrast that with conservatives like abstracted conception of the law as the mechanical affirmation of the priorities of an ancient generation, which, you know, even if you pretend they consistently apply that idea, is just inherently amoral and circular. And I think that the achievements of the Warren court stand on their own as a rejection of the conservative vision of the Constitution. Like, look at the vast apparatus of rootless, formalistic rules that modern conservatives use to rationalize their holdings. And then look at like the very simple guiding principles of the Warren court. Yes. Yeah. Time after time, the Warren court affirmed and enforced the basic ideals of democracy and liberty. And that is why I give it five out of five stars.
2: (laughs) A glowing review.
0: Yeah. All right. We're taking six months off. Uh,
1: (laughs) But we'll be collecting all your Patreon fees right
0: now for the next six months. We are taking the holiday season off as we deserve and as you deserve. Uh, And we'll be back with full-fledged episodes in mid-January. Case TBD. (laughs) We will be dropping a special episode in the coming weeks, something that a lot of people have requested, which is what sort of organizations you can get involved with that are court-adjacent and do good work. We're going to drop some names and some some routes for getting involved. We will be hosting a few events. We're going to do a holiday Q&A hangout.
2: Yes, I can't wait.
0: And then we will be back in the new year with some new shit, perhaps a five to four Twitch stream. Yes. Ooh. We're going to become gamers. <laughs> The next step in our evolution. Do
2: they have Super Mario
1: Brothers on Twitch? You can put Super Mario Brothers on Twitch. That's what
0: I'll play. I really feel based on that question, like you don't understand what Twitch is. <laughs> <laughs> Follow us on Twitter at 5 Pod. Thank you for subscribing <laughs> to our Patreon. We love and appreciate you. And we will see you in the coming weeks. All sorts of shenanigans we're getting into. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. We're saying it. Yeah. Not me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Five to Four is presented by Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Rachel Ward with editorial support from Leon Nafok and Andrew Parsons. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY and our theme song is by Spatial Relations.
2: When I was a teacher, I taught fifth grade. You're trying to build a culture of like college is the expectation. All of us are going to go to college, right? And so you build that into stuff like every day, like in college, this is how you um, talk about books and blah, 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 blah. One time had to have been a solid seven months into the school year. One of my students raised his hand in the middle of class and said, miss at college, did they have foot locker? (laughs) And I was just like, you know what? I'm going to go home. Like, you know, like nothing I've done here has meant a damn thing. You couldn't
0: have just told them that yeah, they do? Good news. Do they have, do they have Foot Locker at college? Oh.
2: That's so good.